Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, everyone, to the new 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories podcast. Here you'll find a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures, as well as the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Some from our archives at 1001 Classic Short Stories and 1001 Stories for the Road, and some newly produced, all here for your entertainment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, an interesting chapter from Doyle's Memories and Adventures, this being Chapter 6, titled, My First Experiences in Practice. And now the story. I have now come to the temporary end of my voyages, which were to be renewed in years to come, and I have reached the time when, under very curious circumstances, I endeavored to establish myself in medical practice, in a book written some years afterwards called The Stark Monroe Letters. I drew in very close detail the events of the next few years, and there the curious reader will find them more clearly and fully set out than would be to scale in these pages. I would only remark, should any reader reconstruct me or my career from that book, that there are some few incidents there which are imaginary, and that, especially, the whole incident of the case of a lunatic and of Lord Saltire in chapter 4 occurred to a friend and not to myself." Otherwise, the whole history of my association with the man whom I called Cullingworth, his extraordinary character, our parting, and the way in which I was left to what seemed certain ruin, were all as depicted. I will here simply give the essentials of the story, and retain the fictitious name. In my last year of study at Edinburgh, I formed a friendship with this remarkable student. He came of a famous medical family, his father having been a great authority upon zymotic disease. He came also of a famous athletic stock, and was a great rugby forward himself, though rather handicapped by the berserk fury with which he would play. He was up to international form, and his younger brother was reckoned by good judges to be about the best forward who ever donned the rose-embroidered jersey of England. Cullingworth was as strong mentally as physically. In person he was about five foot nine inches in height, perfectly built, with a bulldog jaw, bloodshot deep-set eyes, overhanging brows, and yellowish hair as stiff as wire, which spurted up above his brows. He was a man born for trouble and adventure, unconventional in his designs and formidable in his powers of execution, a man of action 
with a big but incalculable brain guiding the action. He died in early middle age, and I understand that an autopsy revealed some cerebral abnormality, so that there was no doubt a pathological element in his strange, explosive character. For some reason he took a fancy to me, and appeared to attach an undue importance to my advice. When I met him first he had just indulged in one of his wild escapades, which ended usually in a fight or in a transitory appearance in a police court, but on this occasion was more serious and permanent. He had run off with a charming young lady and married her, she being a ward in chancery and underage. However, the deed was done, and all the lawyers in the world could not undo it, though they might punish the culprit. He told me how he and the lady had gone over a Bradshaw with the intention that when they came on a station of which neither of them had ever heard, they would make for that place and spend their honeymoon there. They came, therefore, upon some awful name, Claude Pole in the Marsh, or something of that kind, and there they sojourned in the village inn. Cullingworth stained his yellow hair black, but the stain took in some places and not in others, so that he looked as if he had escaped from Barnum's show. What Claude Pole in the Marsh could have thought of such an extraordinary couple I cannot imagine, and it is probably the one occasion on which it ever buzzed. I cannot think of any surer way of getting publicity than that which Cullingworth took to avoid detection. In London, in London they would have been perfectly unobserved. I remember that for years Cullingworth's hair presented curious iridescent tints which were the remains of his disguise. He brought his bride safely to Edinburgh, where they hired a flat and lived in it without furnishing it save for the absolutely needful. I have dined with them there on an apple dumpling, seated on a pile of thick volumes, as there was no chair. We introduced them to a few friends, did what we could for the lonely lady, and finally they drifted off, and for a time we heard no more. Just before I started for Africa I got a long telegram from Cullingworth imploring me to go to Bristol, as he needed my advice. I was in Birmingham, and I set forth at once. When I reached Bristol, he conducted me to a fine mansion, and there poured out his tale of woe. He had started in great style, hoping to rally the remains of his father's patience, but his money had run out, he was dunned by his tradespeople, there were no patients, and what was he to do? We had a joyous, riotous time for two days, for there was an exuberant atmosphere about the man which rose above all trouble. The only advice I could give was that he should make a composition with his creditors. I heard afterwards that he assembled them, addressed them in a long and emotional speech, reduced them almost to tears with his picture of the struggles of a deserving young man, and finally got a unanimous vote of confidence from them with full consent that he should pay at his own leisure. It was the sort of thing that he would do, and tell the story afterwards with a bull's roar of laughter which could be heard down the street. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 
6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now back to my first experience in practice by Arthur Conan Doyle. When I had been back a couple of months from Africa, I received another telegram. He always telegraphed and never wrote, which ran in some such way as this. Started here last June. Colossal success. Come down by next train if possible. Plenty of room for you. Splendid opening. The telegram was stamped Plymouth. A second, even more explosive telegram upbraided me for delay and guaranteed me 300 pounds the first year. This looked like business, so off I went. The events of the next six weeks in the late spring and early summer of 1882 were more fitted for some rollicking novel than for the sober pages of a voracious chronicle. The conditions which I found at Plymouth were incredible. In a short time, this man, half genius and half quack, had founded a practice worth several thousand pounds of ready money in the year. Free consultations, but pay for your medicine, was his slogan and as he charged a good price for the latter, it worked out all the same in the end. The mere words, free consultations, attracted crowds. He used drugs in a heroic and indiscriminate manner which produced dramatic results, but at an unjustifiable risk. I remember one instance where dropsy had disappeared before a severe dose of croton oil in a way that set all the gossips talking. People flocked into the town from twenty and thirty miles round, and not only his waiting rooms, but his stairs and his passages were crammed with people. His behavior to them was extraordinary. He roared and shouted, scolded them, joked them, pushed them about, and pursued them sometimes into the street, or addressed them collectively from the landing. A morning with him when the practice was in full blast was as funny as any pantomime, and I was exhausted with laughter. He had a well-worn volume of medical jurisprudence, which he pretended was the Bible, and he swore old woman on it that they would drink no more tea. I have no doubt he did a great deal of good, for there was reason and knowledge behind all that he did. But his manner of doing it was unorthodox in the extreme. His wife made up the prescriptions at a pigeonhole at the end of a passage, and received the price which was marked on the label carried down by the patient. Every evening Cullingworth walked back to his great residential house upon the hoe, bearing his bag of silver his coat flying, his hat on the back of his head, and his great fangs grinning up at every doctor whose disgusted face showed at a window. Collingworth had rigged me up a room, furnished with one table and two chairs, in which I could take surgical or other cases which he did not care to handle. I feared that my professional manners were very unexciting after his more flamboyant efforts, which I could not imitate even if I wanted to. I had, however, a steady dribble of patience, and it looked as if I might build something up. I went up country once, and operated upon an old fellow's nose which had contracted cancer through his holding the bowl of a short clay pipe immediately beneath it. I left him with an aristocratic, not to say supercilious organ, which was the wonder of the village. It might have been the foundation of my fame. But there were other influences at work, and the threads of fate were shooting out at strange, unexpected angles. My mother had greatly resented my association with Cullingworth. 
her family pride had been aroused, and justly as I can now see, though my wanderings had left me rather too bohemian and careless upon points of etiquette. But I liked Cullingworth, and even now I can't help liking him, and I admired his strong qualities and enjoyed his company and the extraordinary situations which arose from any association with him. This resistance upon my part, and my defense of my friend, annoyed my mother the more, and she wrote me several letters of remonstrance which certainly dealt rather faithfully with his character as it appeared to her. I was careless of my papers, and these letters were read both by Cullingworth and his wife. I do them no injustice in saying this, for they finally admitted it. Apparently he imagined, he was a man of strange suspicions and secret plottings, that I was party to such sentiments, whereas they were actually called forth by my defense of him. His manner changed, and more than once I caught his fierce gray eyes looking furtively at me with a strange, sullen expression, so much so that I asked him what was the matter. He was actually scheming my ruin, which would be nothing financially, since I had nothing to lose, but would be much both to my mother and me if it touched my honor. One day he came to me and told me that he thought my presence complicated his practice and that we had better part. I agreed in all good humor, assuring him that I had not come to hurt him and that I was very grateful for what he had done, even if it came to nothing. He then strongly advised me to go into practice myself. I replied that I had no capital. He answered that he would see to that, that he would allow me a pound a week until I got my feet under me, and that I could repay it at leisure. I thanked him warmly, and after looking at Tavistock, I finally decided that Portsmouth would be a good place, the only reason being that I knew the conditions of Plymouth, and Portsmouth seemed analogous. I boarded an Irish steamer, therefore, and about July of 1882 I started off by sea, with one small trunk containing all my earthly possessions, to start practice in a town in which I knew no single soul. My cash balance was under ten pounds, and I knew not only that I had to meet all present expenses upon this, but that I had to furnish a house upon it. On the other hand, the weekly pound should easily cover all personal needs, and I had the devil-may-care optimism of youth as to the future. When I arrived at Portsmouth, I went into lodgings for a week. On the very first night, with that curious faculty for running into dramatic situations which has always been with me, I became involved in a street fight with a rough who was beating, or rather kicking, a woman. It was a strange start, and after I began my practice, one of the first people to whom I opened my door was this very rascal. I don't suppose he recognized me, but I could have sworn to him. I emerged from the fray without much damage, and was very glad to escape some serious scandal. It was the second time that I got knocked about in defense of a beauty in distress. I spent a week in marking down the unoccupied houses, and finally settled at forty pounds a year into Bush Villa, which a kindly landlord is now called Doyle House. I was terrified lest the agent should ask for a deposit, but the name of my C.B. uncle as reference turned the scale in my favor. Having secured the empty house and its key, I went down to a sale in Portsea, and for about four pounds secured quite a lot of second-hand, possibly tenth-hand, furniture. It met my needs and enabled me to make one room possible for patients with three chairs, a table, and a central patch of carpet. I had a bed of sorts 
and a mattress upstairs. I fixed up the plate which I had brought from Plymouth, bought a red lamp on tick, and fairly settled down in receipt of custom. When all was done, I had a couple of pounds in hand left. Servants, of course, were out of the question, so I polished my own plate every morning, brushed down my front, and kept the house reasonably clean. I found that I could live quite easily and well on less than a shilling a day, so I could hold out for a long period. I had at this time contributed several stories to London Society, a magazine now defunct, but then flourishing under the editorship of a Mr. Hogg. In the April of 1882, number one had a story, now happily forgotten, called Bones, while in the preceding Christmas, number one had another, The Gully of Blue Man's Dyke, both of them feeble echoes of Bret Hart. These, with the stories already mentioned, made up my whole output at this time. I explained to Mr. Hogg how I was situated, and wrote for him a new tale for his Christmas number entitled, My Friend the Murderer. Hogg behaved very well, and sent me ten pounds, which I laid by for my first quarter's rent. I was not so pleased with him when, years later, he claimed the full copyright of all these immature stories, and published them in a volume with my name attached. Have a care, young authors, have a care, or your worst enemy will be your early self. It was as well that I had that ten pounds, for Cullingworth, having learned that I was now fairly committed, with my lease signed, now hurled his thunderbolt, which he thought would crush me. It was a curt letter, not a telegram for wonder, in which he admitted that my letters had been read, expressed surprise that such a correspondence should have gone on while I was under his roof, and declared that he could have nothing more to do with me. He had, of course, no real grievance, but I am quite willing to admit that he honestly thought he had. But his method of revenge was a strange example of the schemings of a morbid mind. For a moment I was staggered. But my boats were burned, and I must go forward. I sent back a derisive reply to Cullingworth, and put him out of my head forever. Indeed, I heard of him no more until some five years later I read the news of his premature death. He was a remarkable man, and narrowly escaped being a great one. I fear that he lived up to his great income, and left his wife but poorly off. What a great story from Arthur Conan Doyle's early life and experiences. This one called My First Experience in Practice. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a moment, please do send us a review for 1001 Sherlock Holmes stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Note that he mentioned a couple of short stories that he had done, and we had just done at least one of those recently. My Friend the Murderer, I think was the one we did. We'll return next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe. Please share our show with a friend and send us a review. And we'll be back soon.